All right, so as you know, we began a new series uh, a couple of weeks ago that we're calling, uh, affectionately calling, Thriving, Not Just Surviving. The idea here being that life in this era is complex. It's, it's challenging. It's, um, I don't know, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced in life and probably unlike any season you've ever gone through. And so instead of just holding on as though all we can do is hold on, we want to find ways to change our mindset, change our perspectives, and be able to see life as God would have us see it so that we can thrive in Him. I thought about calling the series something totally different. I think when you study the book of Daniel, which is what we're studying in the Old Testament, if you have your Bible, you can open it there with me. Daniel chapter 1 will be there shortly. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. We give them away for free. Everybody should have a Bible. We, we would love for you to take one of ours and consider it yours. I thought about calling the series, How to Stand Up for Your Faith Without Being a Jerk. We still may come back to that from time to time because I think Daniel teaches us much, 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 much about that. So I want to start out just filling in some blanks in your listening guide. I don't want you to miss these. So, so you might want to, if you're taking notes today, just check in with this, the first set of blanks. We have a crisis of credibility in our culture. We have a crisis of credibility in our culture. You can't tell who to trust. You can't tell how much to trust. And to some degree, you can't tell when to trust and when not to. There's so much misinformation in our world. How do you discern what is truth? It's a serious issue for anyone who believes there is such a thing as truth. For one, I think we have a crisis of credibility in our culture because our culture for so long has told us there is no such thing as truth. Of course, it's humorous to me now because when nobody wants to believe the experts on truth on either side, they get upset when, when they've told us for so long, truth is what you want it to be. I would argue, pandemic or not, you can want something all day long that doesn't make it truth. Then there's bias. Everybody has one. It should just be acknowledged. Whether you're talking about social media and bias there, or you're talking about traditional media sources, and, you know, the, the big news channels of the world, bias is evident. And for anybody who's looking for it, it's easy to find. The question, I think, when it comes to credibility is, do we understand our own bias? Do I just hear what I want to hear? Then there's political distrust and infighting, right? I mean, the likes of which I don't know that we've ever seen in our lifetime. Now, I, I'd say that as somebody born in the 70s, not somebody who lived through the 60s. I don't mean that badly. I'm just admitting there may have been something I didn't experience. But in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like this. And then there's this human nature thing that so many of us wrestle with that has nothing to do with politics. 
It's the nature of, of each of our hearts to tell ourselves a story we want to hear. And so somebody does something, and we tell ourselves the story we want to hear. And somebody over here does something else, and we tell ourselves, we interpret. And we interpret according to our own bias, so that we tell ourselves what we want to hear over here, and we tell ourselves what we want to hear over there. And after a while, you can't begin to know, well, what is motivated by my bias, and what is motivated by just truth? Ask any leader who's had a uh, struggle in public morality, and they'll tell, you so, they'll tell you that this is very true. I was thinking about a football coach for an NFL team found doing something he shouldn't be doing with someone he shouldn't be doing it with that happened just this week. Like, how do you go from I do forever and ever and ever, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live to death do us part, to moral slippage. It happens one lie to yourself at a time. And while we think we're fooling the world, the person we tend to most fool is ourselves. Credibility, it turns out, I think has a formula. I wrote this in my notes. I didn't, I didn't make it a set of blanks, but I wrote this in my notes. Credibility is character. We'll deep dive deep into that today. Plus competence. You know, character, that, that, that moral building block that says you can be trusted. Competence, that, that ability to say, you know what, I'm consistent. I do what I'm supposed to do. I do what I'm expected to do. Even better, I do what I expect myself to do. And courage. Character plus competence plus courage. If you want credibility in any given situation, those three, that triangle of those three C's have to come together. There, there will be moments where it's earned through courage, but without character, it will be lost. There are moments where competence can prove the day, but without character, it will be lost. There will be moments of character... But if it doesn't show up eventually as hard work, credibility will be lost as well. Of course, trust is quick to be lost. And humanly speaking, these days, so, so slow and difficult to be earned. And that's part of why we're studying Daniel. So I want to read with you again Daniel 1. We've been through this a bit already, but I want to make sure we really exhaust all this chapter has to say to us because this chapter forms the basis of all of the rest of the chapters of Daniel. To understand the book of Daniel, you have to understand Daniel chapter 1. So Daniel 1 verse 1 says, and we've covered the history in depth, so I'm not going to go over the history much today, but in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It was not a pretty picture. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, this verse is actually pretty key to understanding the the setup for the rest of the book because some of the book is largely about who is really God, the gods of the Babylonians or the God of the Hebrews, singular God. Yahweh, or the plural gods, the many gods of the people of Babylon, who is ultimately sovereign at the end of the day. And while you and I don't live in Babylon today, we live in the United States of America, we could easily look around. And, and so many Americans will claim to be non-religious, right? That, that number is ever increasing in American life. But everybody has a God, little g God. Everybody makes different things into gods because everybody worships something or someone. Now, the gods of then are really no different than the gods of today. Let's think about it. The god of cash, the god of sex, the god of power, the god of fame, glory, pride. These things are issues at a heart level that every human being struggles with. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men, which means that these, were, these young men were at some level in line to be king if enough people didn't make it. And given that their country had just been overthrown, there's actually some slight possibility here. Of course, I would remind us that there is one who comes from their line who would be king of kings, who's the one the whole book is about. You know him as Jesus. But this is written 600 years before the time of Jesus. So young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And Ashpenaz was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years. And that, that little line about they were assigned wine from food from the king's table just kind of goes by, and you think, what's the big deal? It, it, they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And among those were chosen, who, who were chosen were some from Judah. There was Daniel, right? right, Daniel, and then the three friends, we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel, verse 8, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, you know, the, the food and wine from the king's table. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. So here it said twice, not defile himself in this way. Which I think leads to a bit of a question, why? Why did Daniel see the food and the wine as defiling? We'll come back to that. But let me make 
the point I want to make today, the one thing this message is about, and then we'll dive into those details. So here's the one thing this is about today, sort of the singular point of the message. Character is built very simply one hard step at a time. Character in life is built one hard step at a time, one difficult step at a time, one challenging step at a time. I ran my thesaurus on this (laughs) because words really matter. And in this case, I think hard says is as simply as you can get. I'm going to break the steps we're talking about down as we go through this and as we apply the text when we work our way back through it. But for now, let's suffice it to say, or let's be honest about something. If character is built one difficult step at a time and one hard step at a time, everything in our culture flies in the face of this. Because let's be honest, our culture is built for comfort. Our culture is built for convenience. Our culture is built to make your life easy. Every message you get And advertising says, this will make your life easier. This will make your life better. But by better, we tend to be mean more comfortable. We have have comfortability and convenience served up for us on a platter every single day. Hey, just take the easy path. I find myself regularly asking, even in stupid situations, why does life sometimes have to be so difficult? Let me tell you how vain I am and how shallow I can be in this sense. I go to the grocery store and I pick the time, I pick the store, and I have this ongoing game I play in my head, you do too. How could the lines be any slower than at this moment? That moment for me might be Sunday afternoons. That moment might be Friday afternoons. It might be Tuesday night. It might be Tuesday morning. It might be any day of the week you come in and you think, how did I pick the worst time of the week to come to the grocery store? You're laughing at me now. I'm taking that as sort of you know what I'm talking about, not just you're laughing at me. But of course, the one time I need five things and I need in and out. And I'm in a hurry and everybody else should know it. (laughs) Is the one time like half the registers for the self-checkout are shut down and we all know they only run one of the checkout registers anymore. I am the checkout person. It's Safeway, unless I have a full cart. I'm, and if I have the full cart, then I'm in the dreaded. Now, I will give where I shop credit. It tends to be more than one lane open, but it's often just two. And then there's three people in line. And you know we all spread out more than we used to. So you're like halfway back the aisle in front of the checkout lane. You're trying to get in, trying to stay back. And then people come and they hop in. And, and you just think to yourself, Why is shopping so difficult? I told you I was going to tell you how vain I am. This is the dumbest of little stories to show you how quickly and how easily the story I tell myself is all about how I want to be comfortable, how I want things to be convenient. Does this make sense? 
Of course, I think if it's true that character is built one hard step at a time, this informs us as parents. My generation is um, sort of easily referred to as doing too much um, either hovering or helicoptering in our parenthood, right? Helicoptering where we drop in and we just poof all over everything. Ask my kids, they'll say, yeah, dad's guilty of that. Or hovering where we're just always there. But I would challenge us, whether we're millennials having kids or, or we're Gen Z with kids, you know, way down the road in the future, not even on the horizon, or whether we're boomers that had our kids and raised them long, long time ago. Parenting in the modern era is challenging. It's difficult. Parenting with these things in mind, where babies are born going, where's my tablet? Where's my device? You know, the pressure to have to have access to these things at ages four and five and seven is insane. So if you raised your kids a long, long time ago and you think, oh man, parents just don't understand today, I'm going to on one hand tip my hat to you and say kudos to you guys because you, you parented in a day where, where you would let the kids go out the front door and it was like, I'll see you at dinner, maybe. Like, kudos to you guys, but on the other hand, I would challenge you with your grandkids, your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, to remember that it's a different world. That being said, I think this principle teaches us something as parents, because the parental tendency inside of me is to want to rescue, to protect, that I, I'm a protector as a dad. And yet, if I never allow my kids to work through difficulty, am I robbing them of the chance for God to develop their character? Listen to these verses from the New Testament. I didn't put them in your notes, but you might want to jot them down. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Paul wrote, not only so, Romans 5, 3 to 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Wow. No suffering, no perseverance, no perseverance, no character, no character, no hope. Romans not Romans, that was Romans. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I've always looked at that verse and thought, are you nuts? <laughs> Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. So how does God develop character in us? How does Jesus develop character in his disciples? I mean, read the stories of the Gospels, and you see where Jesus didn't always rescue. He let his disciples get into situations where they were fumbling and stumbling. He let them fail. He let Peter put his foot in his mouth I don't know how many times. Of course, molding and shaping not only his character, but his leadership. 
So let's go back through the text and let's ask ourselves one more time, what are these difficult steps? How does Jesus develop our character? If character is so important and so consequential that credibility is on the line, and step out of my little preacher box here for a minute, I'm a flawed human being just like you. Nobody short of Jesus has perfect character. That's not a defense of sin. That's just an honest admission that we have to be honest and truthful about. I'm going to step back in, and now in my preacher box, I'm going to say, nobody short of Jesus has perfect character. Preachers should say that. It's why I need Jesus. I need the one who did have perfect character to put his character in me. I need a heart exchange that happens between me and Jesus. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, that being said, how does Jesus develop our character? Number one, characters developed, you'll notice the trend here, one hard decision at a time. It's one hard step at a time. Those steps involve choices. One hard choice, one hard decision at a time. But Daniel, verse 8 said, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And I love that, you know, the next verse says he asked the chief official permission not to defile himself in this way. So you see the heart of his character, both his resolve and his respect for others, the way he treated the chief official. But let's come back to that word resolve. It's a super important word. Before I, before I dig into that word, I want to ask the obvious question. Why did Daniel see the food and wine as defiling? And I, I think Rick Warren calls this the Daniel fast, right? It's the sort of, it's the no, no sweets, no treats. It's the veggies and liquids kind of fast. Why did he see it as defiling? Well, I'm going to be straight with you. We're not exactly sure. There's a lot of guesses, and they're good guesses, but we're not exactly sure. It may have been as simple as Daniel knew his Old Testament. And his Old Testament said that certain foods, certain meats particularly, were defiling to Jewish people. They had dietary restrictions in their food laws. We don't always understand those in our Gentile, like, like you know, sort of New Testament Christian way of thinking. But those dietary restrictions were real for them, and that kosher diet might have been the basis here. Might have. It might be, and I tend to think this is more likely the case, because the food on the king's table had been used in worship in Babylon, in the Babylonian temples, as sacrifices to the Babylonian gods. And to participate in eating it was to participate in the worship of the Babylonian gods. Daniel clearly would have seen that as defiling to his character. Again, you hear food sacrifice to idols and you think, we don't do that. But go to the tailgate at any football game and you will smell the smell of the food sacrificed. <laughs> I said, Brian, are you telling me at the tailgate that I can't have a hot dog or a burger or a sausage? No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that you know the allure of the smell food that has been burned, right? 
cooked. Beyond this, this would have been offered, potentially at least, as a sacrifice to the Babylonian gods. To participate in eating it was to worship the Babylonian gods, and Daniel would have looked at that and said, I'm out. You can't do that. And it might be, and this is a little more hidden in the text, but it might be because Daniel wanted to know that that the king was not the source of everything. I mean, think about it. They were supplied what they needed from the king's table. And the resolve to not eat it might have been Daniel's way of saying, look, You, the king, are not the source of my nourishment and therefore not the source of my strength, not the source of my wisdom, and not the source of my success. Nonetheless, you and I both know this. One decision leads to another decision, leads to another decision, leads to another. And I think it's safe to say that this singular decision shaped all of his future decisions about character, about faithfulness, about how he would live and how he would lead. If he fudged it here, he could fudge it a little there. You know that temptation, don't you? Just a little lie here, little lie there, little lie there. I'm not lying to anybody. Nobody else thinks I'm lying. God doesn't know I'm lying. There have been no consequences for the lie. Little here, little there, little here, little there. Pretty soon you're lying about everything and you're lying to everyone. And of course, the only person you're fooling is yourself. It's easy to see how unfaithfulness begets more unfaithfulness and how faithfulness and character beget more faithfulness and character. These young men made little decisions, what we would say are not the biggest things in the world. I mean, it was just some food. But, but can't we easily, when it comes to character, say it was, it was just a simple thing? And yet, if we're faithful in the simple things, that leads to faithfulness in the bigger, more important things. So two key words here, right? The word resolve and the word defile. The word resolve is sometimes translated, he purposed in his heart. It could literally be translated, he put in front of his heart. So in his mind, in his soul, in his heart, he put in front of him that he would not defile himself. The best time to make decisions about tough circumstances and tough choices is long before you're in them. Not that you and I can know the future, we can't. But you can anticipate the kinds of moral challenges and struggles we all face, and you can decide in advance who you want to follow and who you want to be. You can put in front of your heart to do the right thing and the God-honoring thing. Second key word here is the word defile. To defile is to pollute, to desecrate, to profane, to stain, to make unclean. To be defiled is, is to not be sacred, to not be holy, to not be set apart to God. I think this probably is the point Daniel was making. I might be stuck here in Babylon. That was not my choice. But I will not be made to be Babylonian. I do not belong to Babylon. I do not belong to Nebuchadnezzar. I belong to my God. That was Daniel's resolve. And I question myself, and I would ask you at least, have you made this decision? 
Character is built easily one hard choice, one hard decision at a time. Number two, character is developed one hard truth at a time. This goes with decision-making and choices, but character is developed one hard truth at a time. The ability to hear a hard truth, the ability to tell yourself a hard truth, and the ability to tell somebody else the hard truth. I want you to think about the rest of what you know about Daniel. Many of you are familiar generally with the story. How many times did Daniel stand up to a king who was clearly not only his superior, but far more powerful, and tell them exactly what they did not want to hear? This character forms the basis, really, of the book of Daniel, if you think about it because it was foundational to who he was. He would resolve not to defile himself. We can debate all along why the food and wine were defiling. But the bottom line is, I think Daniel knew his Old Testament. He knew the hard truths. He knew, certainly, of the kosher diet laws and the dietary restrictions, if that's the issue. He certainly knew not only the commandments, but all of the other places that would tell him how easy it is for a heart to worship a God you should not worship and why he needed to keep the worship of his God at the center of his being. And Daniel certainly would know from the Old Testament that if he was to be God's and if he wanted God to work through him, then he needed these hard truths to echo and reverberate in his soul. And I think one of the reasons Daniel could tell the hard truths and speak truth to authority, truth to power, is because Daniel had been speaking truth to his own power for a long, long time, or his own lack of power. In a lot of ways, what we're saying is, why exactly did Daniel draw the line in the sand where he drew it? And again, I'm admitting that we cannot be certain, but I can tell you with certainty that it had to do with this idea of his God and the truth of his God. And because of that, Daniel was willing to follow God, listen to God, it's not just Daniel, right? It's his friends, Rakshak and Benny, too, right? When we get around to Daniel 3 and Rakshak and Benny in the fiery furnace, you get the same principle on display. In fact, I think that's the story where they're like, hey, king, uh, we just want you to know that our God can rescue us, and even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. That there is a resolve based on truth that is outside of yourself that comes from God. God's word is Daniel's true source of wisdom, and the Bible is not some old, irrelevant book. It's a timeless treasure full of truth and wisdom, and it's why we're always talking about the need to read our Bibles and be in our Bibles. One of the hallmark traits of Daniel and his three buddies is that they seek God for wisdom. The word wisdom shows up in this chapter and then it shows up over and over and over again in the book. Who was the source of their wisdom? God was. So characters built one hard decision at a time, one hard truth at a time. Number three, characters developed one hard act of self-discipline at a time. 
verse 8 summarized it well. Actually, verse 5, I want to remind you what verse 5 said. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were trained for three years. Notice the time contrast there. Daily food, three years. So Daniel ends up seeing all of this and going, what am I going to do here? Of course, verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Verse 9 says, now God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, which you see, again, the sovereignty of God show up just like that throughout the book. Daniel acts and God causes something and Daniel responds and God works. And you see this hand in glove sort of God works, Daniel works, God works, Daniel works thing that goes all the way through this. But the official told Daniel, verse 10, I'm afraid of the Lord, my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? And the king would have my head then because of you. So notice, Daniel may not so much be worried about the king, but the official is. And courage begins to enter into the picture here. And hold on to those thoughts about courage because next week we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how to develop courage the same way. If, if credibility is character plus competence plus courage, we've got to figure out how to develop courage to be people of credibility, people of character. Daniel, of course, proposes sort of a um, win-win test, if you will. Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. Now I get the sense, and there is some debate about whether Daniel continued this for the rest of his life or whether this was just for this 10 days, or whether it was for the three years. I, I tend to think it was far more than the 10 days, given that he resolved himself not to defile himself in this way. Whatever was defiling about it, I don't think he was one day waking up and saying, now I'm good with defiling myself. But think about the tailgate. Before the big game, and you're making your way through the parking lot in the crowd, and you're smelling the waft of grilled veggies. Because that's what's on your grill. But the grills next door, they have brisket. Right, they got pork sliders, right? Bratwurst over here. Everything great over there. You're smelling the waft of all of this, and your plate's got grilled veggies. Isn't there some self-discipline going on here? Isn't self-discipline hard? How many of you have said, this year I'm going to, you set a goal, and it doesn't have to be a New Year's Eve New Year's Day kind of thing. You just, you set a goal and you say, I'm going to drink less coffee. I'm going to drink less sugar. In my case, I'm going to drink less Dr. Pepper. I'm going to... And yet we're built for comfort, we're built for convenience, we're all tired, we're all, and we're just right back to our habits just like that, right? Characters developed one hard act of self-discipline at a time. 
Isn't it Jesus that said, if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much? That's, that's a piece of what's going on here is the faithfulness in the little things. Number four, characters developed one act of hard work at a time. One act of hard work at a time. Life, to some degree, boils down to its work. It's the phrase that these days we would say to our kids as they're growing up, yeah, that adulting thing is hard, isn't it? Because the bottom line is work is work and everything involves work. I mean, think about it. The tailgate with the grilled veggies involves work. You don't just show up at the tailgate. You gotta prep everything, you gotta load everything. If it's grilled veggies, you've gotta have the right tools for that. You've gotta load everything in the car. Things have to be chopped. You've gotta, there's work involved in that. In the most fun thing we can do in the world, which is go hang out at sporting events, or you know, my idea of fun, but maybe not yours. But whatever your idea of fun is, even that involves work. Certainly, Work involves work, doesn't it? You say, what do you know about work, Brian? You have like a cush job, right? You work one day a week. Right? God tells you what you say. You show up and say it. It's, it's what you love. It's what you're passionate about. That one day a week thing, not so true. The love and passion part, that is true. But it's still work, isn't it? Work is still hard work. Now, notice this. Just keep reading. I, I think I left off at verse 14, so I'm going to pick up verse 15 just to keep us going. It said, At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So they did the Daniel fast test thing. It was a win-win situation, really, because it was going to win for the chief official and win for Daniel. He used his wisdom to come up with the solution. They looked better. The guard took away their choice food and wine and they, that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. And verse 17 says, To these four young men God gave, now notice the words here, knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And remember, they were to study the literature and the works of the Babylonians. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And right about there, I think we think, well, now we know why things work so well for Daniel, because he was a special human being, because God dropped some kind of gifting into his life and said, boom, there you go. And so Daniel didn't have to do anything hard. All he had to do was say, God, what's the interpretation of the dream? And God would give it to him, and he would just, and none of it was hard. I don't know one gifted individual who will tell you that's the way it works. And by the way, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a gifted individual. The Bible says that he gave us all gifts for the common good, it says in 1 Corinthians. The bottom line is, yes, Daniel was given gifts by God, but he had to develop them. He had to work hard at them. And these young men spent three years learning everything they probably didn't want to learn about the new culture around them. Remember, they had been taken as prisoners of war, kidnapped into this culture. 
Yes, Daniel was given gifts, but he had to work hard at using his gifts. He had to work hard at leveraging his gifts. He had to work hard at developing his gifts. And you and I have to learn to develop the character to choose hard work and competence when the world around us is driven by convenience. And the, bless you, the world around us does just enough to get by. When the work culture of any organization is to work less and work just enough to get by, you stand out when you show up and you work hard. And at some level, we all know this. Because at some level, we've all seen it play out in our homes, in the organizations we volunteer for, in our sports teams we've been involved with, and we've seen it play out. And you all know nobody wants to follow someone lazy, just like no one wants to follow a person with poor character, right? Right? I mean, we will all sort of morally fudge ourselves when it comes to our own character and be willing to be super gracious and forgive a lot. But when it comes to other people, we don't line up to follow people who just have no character, no credibility, or in this case, no hard work, no competence. Of course, they worked hard to serve the king, but while working hard to serve the earthly king, they were really working hard to serve their king, the invisible king, the king of kings. Characters developed one act of hard work at a time. And number five, characters developed one hard success or one hard failure at a time. Characters developed one hard success or one hard failure at a time. The bottom line for Daniel really was reward. Everything went his way in this chapter. But I do want to ask you, do we think Jesus is, that Daniel is Jesus? Right, that Daniel never had anything not go his way. I mean, he was put in charge of Babylon, and he was put in charge of various parts of the city, and he brought along the three friends and said, hey, you guys, do you think that the people always followed everything they said, that it always went easy? Somehow I doubt it, and I can guarantee you this, he's not Jesus, he's not a perfect man. Now, this letter makes him sound pretty good, and I think he honestly was and had a lot of credibility but I don't think he was beyond failure. Nonetheless, the end of the chapter says, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and all the enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, which is a way of saying a bunch of rulers later, and a bunch of decades later. Daniel remained, Nebuchadnezzar did not. That's the implication. Why? I think because he had this credibility. But I also think this is reminding us that success is not always easy. One of the things I say to folks when they come into cash, you know, like an inheritance kind of thing, is that most of us don't know how difficult it is to be the steward of much. And for a lot of reasons, most of us go, yeah, man, if I won that Powerball thing, it'd all be good. 
it'd make life so much easier. But it doesn't. It doesn't. To be faithful with little is to be required to be faithful with much. To be faithful with much is harder. It's why I teach young couples, when you make almost nothing and you're young and you first get married, that's the best time to learn to give and be generous. That's the best time to learn to tithe because that's the season where the dollar amount is smaller than it will ever be generally for most of the rest of your life. The reality is failure is hard and success is hard. And there's something to be learned in both of them. And character is developed in them when we learn the right lessons, when we follow our God and we prioritize what he's doing. In the end, this drives me back to I am flawed. I'm not only not Daniel, I'm certainly not Jesus. And I tend to slip, or for that matter, throw out my character on occasions. So where are we left? Well, here's what we're left with. We're left with a Savior who knows we're flawed, a God who knows we're flawed, who cared about us enough not to stay away, but to pour himself into our world and into our life. And Jesus lived it, one hard step, one hard character choice, one hard truth. Jesus did all that hard stuff one step at a time, didn't he? And the world crucified him for it. But the reality is, at the end of the day, I need his character put into me. And I need him to remove all of my character defects. And that is a lifestyle of walking with Jesus. One day at a time, one hard choice at a time, one hard step at a time. Because that's how Jesus develops it. Make sense? All right, I want to pray our two prayers. We always end with two prayers. The first is a prayer of salvation. The second, a prayer of application, a prayer of discipleship. If you need Jesus today and you realize I need his forgiveness, I'm not only flawed, I'm sinful, that I need Jesus more than I ever have been aware of in my life, man, now is the perfect time online or in person to say today I need Jesus because he runs to us when we confess that. You can pray just like this. Dear Jesus, I admit that there are cracks in my character. Sometimes huge ones. And so Jesus, I admit that I need you. And even more importantly, I want you. Please forgive my sin. Please take over my life. And please be my God. Help me to want what you want and love what you love. Be my God, Jesus. Make me like you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed this prayer, man, I'd love to know it. You can tell me on the digital communication card online, the paper communication card in the room. You can, you can tell me by seeking me out or right after service. You can tell me by emailing me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. You can tell someone who invited you, someone you came with, but we'd love to celebrate with you that you've become a follower of Jesus Christ. 
talk about what it means to be part of a church, give you a Bible, talk about baptism, all the cool stuff that it means to be a Christian. And many of us prayed that prayer or a similar one years and years ago. And yet we realize that we need the character of Jesus now more than ever, don't we? Not just our nation needs it, but we personally need it. So I would challenge you, would you pray this prayer of application with me? Echo it in your soul, dear Jesus. Fill me with you. That in the end, I would be like you. Jesus, give me your perspective to see the difficult steps and the hard steps as opportunities to become like you. Jesus, tell me the hard truths. Help me to make the hard decisions. This week, help me to live out the difficult moments of self-discipline. And put in the years of difficult or hard work so that the outcomes of my life, both the successes and the failures, can be opportunities to become more like you, Jesus. Please just make me more like you, Jesus, I pray in your name.